Pride Nation 101. Welcome to Pride Nation 101. Queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Highway 101 to the world. We will put a fabulously positive spin on 2022 by going over a bunch of the great things that have happened for queer communities worldwide. From the Respect for Marriage Act to the Besatón Colombiano, the Bogota Colombia Kissathon, we will bring you some positively queer New Year's cheer. We are in the middle of a huge storm here in Northern California, and it has messed up my power and my system and everything else for the second episode running. Get ready. For the sound quality to get crazy. Tonight on Pride Nation 101, we have a special episode for you. We are going to have a small roundtable discussion of all the best news affecting the queer community in the last year, and maybe a little bit more. And it's going to be kind of like Fox and Friends. Their job is to fill you with resentment, grievance, and petty nitpicking. Whereas the job of our hand-curated team of queer pundits, that's the three of us since uh we lost power last night and lost some of our other pundits. We're here to fill you your new year with love, joy, and pride for your beautiful queer self and all of your queer, bi, trans, straight, gender fluid, and tweener cistern. We are going to look at a choice selection of the great things that have happened in the world in the last 372 days and do what pundits do. We're going to ramble, rant, interrupt each other, cheer, and we're all going to do this facilitated by the invisible but carbon-intensive magic of the World Wide Web, aided by the distorted sound quality of the pandemic's biggest winner, Zoom. I am Chad Oliver Swimmer. Joining me today on Pride and Friends is my cross-generational co-host, <laughs> Roland Corey Medina. <laughs> we are here with my new friend and Chad's old friend, J.W., who has been here with us on a previous episode with a beautiful monologue. How are you doing tonight? Fantastic. I am well. Thank you. I am well the third day of the new year. Yay! And we, just before we turned the record button on, we were talking about coming out of the closet and how it's changed over so many years. But Jonathan was saying, well, it's hard to come out of something you were never in. Want to elaborate on that? Uh, yeah. Um, for a few of us that I know, my contemporaries in the thing called the gay life, um, we were just being, just being ourselves and others were having an issue with who we were. So when we finally, if you will, came out, we didn't do anything different than just go to a different, go to a bar. You know, we came out of our house and went to a bar. That's what we did. That was our coming out. And we had a lot of fun doing so. Other people made it a point to let us know that we were coming out. We were just living. We were just being ourselves and we didn't know any way else to be or to live. And although challenging in the 80s, you had to be, life's so much different today because it's easier. I think that people think it's more challenging. I think because we're having the conversations that matter, people are like, oh yeah, this is groundbreaking, we have to do this. No, you try living gay back in the 80s when everyone was dying of AIDS and everyone was running in the opposite direction. And if you looked like you were gay in a city like Chicago, we were in a restaurant once and someone said when we walked in, my two friends and I, he was like, oh, these look like they got that old aid. And we were like, mm. so now where is this going to go? What are we going to do if they start fighting us? What's going to happen? 
much different time than today. You see? And yes, we use the term coming out because at some point you have to just own it. It wasn't like we were hiding a whole lot. We found people much like ourselves. And when we found the clubs at 16 years old, we ran to them with fake IDs. And we ran every weekend we could to those clubs and had a great time. Well, and things have changed so much since then. It's it's kind of beyond my comprehension, the level of bad things that have happened, but the good things. One of the great stories, of course, and you are married, as we know, because I was at your wedding, that marriage equality became a reality in Mexico, Slovenia, Cuba, and Chile, and of course, the United States with the Respect for Marriage Act. I'm going to read a little bit of an article from LGBTQ Nation. So in October, Slovenia officially legalized marriage equality and adoption, making it the first country in Eastern Europe to do so. This historic moment came after a six to three constitutional court decision in July said that same-sex marriage and adoption are constitutional rights. The court ordered parliament to add an amendment within six months. And closer to home, in the same month, the entire country of Mexico achieved marriage equality after the final state approved it. Earlier in March, Javier Silva and Jaime Nezar became the first gay couple to legally wed in Chile after the nation passed marriage equality legislation in December. And Cubans voted in favor of legalizing same-sex marriage. And JW, you and I have a friend from Cuba, and he didn't he flee Cuba in the Mariel Boatlift? Because the Mario of- Boatlift, yes. Uh-huh. And it was a very interesting time for him. Um, yeah, that whole scene was scary for him. Um, but, you know, they managed to get to, I believe it was Arkansas, where the Ku Klux Klan members were rallying around the building where they were being kept, you yeah. know, as refugees trying to get to various states. Um, and uh, he made it to San Francisco where he has resided since 1980. Yeah. But they also swam over shark-filled infested waters in little boats with 20 to 30 people on them, and they could have gone, you know, so. <laughs> and the U.S.? I mean, I didn't used to think that marriage was such a good idea for anybody, really. But right. I've obviously changed my opinion as I'm married uh, <laughs> a woman. But um, yeah, how has being married changed your relationship? The truth is it hasn't. Um, when I speak about marriage, it's, you know, not to be daunting, but I think we got married to protect one another. I think we married so that, you know, because we had already had property together. Not that we didn't love each other. We love each other to death, but we didn't have to get married because we were in love. We married because we wanted to make sure that if anything happened to me or him, if I wound up in an emergency room or vice versa, that we get to go in that room and hold the hand of our loved one. That no one can tell us anything different than that. That when if anything happened to one of us, that if there's some, you know, with property that we own, you know, our, our will, our living will or whatever, there's no one that can contest that outside of our immediate household because we're married. You see, these things matter to us. And so that's why we really married. We could have gone through life without being married. Like you, Chad, I was never a, a big champion for marriage. However, I'm a champion for it for people who believe it is the thing they want to do. And if they have the justifiable reason for doing it, 
like in our case, you know, I think we married and it was a smart thing to do. And I think that if you are an emotionally honest person, that being married to somebody holds you to a higher bar of honesty and integrity that. It, it does. It should, you know, but, but that's the thing, you know, about the thing that I love about same sex marriage, if you will, we also get to define how relationships go for us. Mm-hmm. Our relationships, our marriages don't necessarily look like the heteronorm marriage. We get to define within our marriage what, what the rules are based on what we want. And no one can say anything about that. Because as long as we're happy with the rules that we're living by, that's all that matters, you know, which is great. So, yeah, it holds you to a higher standard. But at the same time, we have been afforded that opportunity to define what marriage is for us and not based on a hetero norm. Yeah. And men yeah. have been doing that for years because we get things that, you know, not necessarily women feel or, or you know, man to woman relationship. We're different in that way, men to men. We understand differently about love and relationship and um, being emotionally supportive in relationships and marriages in particular. And, you know, some would say, oh, my gosh, well, what kind of relationship is that if you're open and, you know, and he's seeing that person, you're seeing that person. Well, we don't have a problem with that. I have been in a relationship with somebody for almost three years. We're quote unquote high school sweethearts, but of course, like one of them just graduated, the other just graduated one year later. And we're still very pretty early in our relationship in terms of our ages. Uh, we're only one year apart. And we have talked about getting married potentially. And we have talked about what are the boundaries going to look like in our relationship because we're both trans men and we do have those sets of limits and communications and boundaries and permissions like i'm allowed to talk about if i have a question on somebody he's allowed to talk about it if he wants to you know go out and get with somebody we can sit and have that conversation and decide if we are secure enough to pursue stuff like that because if we love each other and we're devoted to one another then that's pretty much stronger than anything else that the other person could do of course there's still the problems that we can run into but I think that's great. I think that's a great role. But and and your generation is actually doing it differently too. You're not buying into what you know a heteronorm marriage should be, because I mean it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. But what can work? It sounds like what you've just described to me is somewhat of a polyamorous relationship, where as long as two people are agree are in agreement with that, that's healthy. Because the truth of the matter is this. You will one day not be as sexually attracted to the person you would want to be with the rest of your life. And what do you do with that? The truth of the matter is also that the love you have is going to change and be defined. It's not going to be that same, like, oh, I'm so in love. I just met you and you're the best thing that's happened to me. Where 10, 15 years online, you go through any number of things. The kids come, this happens. The money's don't act right, whatever. But you're still together. You still love each other. But it's totally different than when when you first met. Mm -hmm. And that first year or two, it changes. And those are the conversations that I think healthy couples are willing to have and understand that this may change. And are we still going to want to hang in there 
You know, and that's the whole point. If I love you unconditionally, then I'm here for the long haul of this marriage, of this relationship. And let's talk about it all. I don't have to withhold anything from you because you're my, you're my lover. You're the person I care the most about. You're my friend. You're my best friend. So here we go. And it may be challenging, but at least if you get to the point where you're willing to do that. And again, your generation, and we need to say there's a generational gap on this conversation. And Roland, you all are really doing it, I think, in a way that actually is going to carry you all much further than it's carried many generations before you. So hold on to that. I think it's a beautiful thing. And I might say, you know, I'm here in LA, in Los Angeles, you have a lot. This is one of the things I love about Los Angeles. People here, my, my boss at work is in a polyamorous marriage. He's, in, he's, he's married to a bisexual woman. And they agree that as long as they have a conversation about who they're going to have sex with and agree that it's okay, she can have sex with other women. He can have sex with other women. Sometimes he has sex with men if she's with a, another woman that she likes and they both have husbands and they want their husbands to play while they play. It's oh. all good. They've been together 13 years. They're happy as can be. No wonder people are fearful for the social fabric of America. That sounds positively heathen. <laughs> it sounds so heathen, doesn't it, Chuck? Yeah. Well, let's, how- let's move on to a different story. And this is one where... Um, well, U.S. is not number one, that Ireland voted to make trans people a protected class. We're here, as somebody just declared, they are a trans person, and we are in a country where you're not protected by law. Unfortunately, but I mean, honestly, what can I do about it, Chad, do you think? Uh, You can do a show like this. That's very, very true. Little steps, baby steps. In October, the Irish cabinet voted in favor of a bill that says that anyone convicted of purposefully inciting hatred or violence against a person due to their gender, identity, or expression could face up to five years in prison. Boy, that could apply to Marjorie Taylor Greene like 50 times in the last two months. Right. (laughs) Well, you know, do you feel, I have a question for Roland, do you feel, I mean, you live in a very, I think, isolated area of our country where there are not so many LGBTQIA anything, okay, yet only three hours from the biggest, arguably one of the biggest gay meccas in the world. But do you feel that you being trans, um, that you are unsafe? Do you feel like if people knew that, you would, you know, that harm could be brought to you? Well, so when I was in school, that was a main issue. And I was worried about bullying or harassment or even, you know, physical intimidation. And luckily, nobody ever said anything or did anything, at least to my face. Maybe people said stuff behind my back. It never really affected me when it came to that. But I often do not feel comfortable enough advertising my transness mm-hmm, unless mm-hmm. it's in like this medium, for example. Like I get vastly uncomfortable if I find out that Chatter's wife are telling people that they have a trans foster kid in their house, like vastly uncomfortable because it's not me saying it. If it was me walking out on the street and I saw a friend, like they asked me, how'd your top surgery go? Like, I wouldn't care. But if I'm <laughs> being approached by strangers and for some reason they ask me about 
you know, my transness. I don't know why they would do that on the street, but let's just imagine the scenario. I wouldn't feel unsafe. I just feel very, very uncomfortable. That's more of a personal thing. I, yeah, I don't, I'm not into advertising the fact that I'm transgender, but in this town, definitely isolated. There are definitely few of us. There are more and more people, especially younger people, younger kids, like uh, underclassmen in high school and middle school who are starting to come out. Like, even if they don't come out as a different gender, you know, they've got the different pronouns, like she days and he days. Sure. And that's why I asked that. I mean, because like where I live um, here in L.A., I mean, your generation, they are just running the streets, being themselves. And nobody, it's like nobody really, I mean, there are probably a few people that care. Most people, they're just like, whatever. Yeah. And, and it's a beautiful thing because my generation, not to pat myself or my generation on the back, we pay the higher price so you can be. And that's why I asked of this of you, because if, if our paying a higher price still makes you feel that unsafe, then we've got a lot more work to do. But I see it differently because I know that in the 60s, you've heard of Stonewall, those transgender women, particularly black women, fought the cops because they were tired of being arrested. And on the day that Judy Garland died, they weren't taking it anymore. And they retaliated against the cops, many of whom were beaten with guns, many of whom were arrested. You know, one woman, um, uh, Marsha Brown, I think her name is, she's still missing. Well, she's, we know she's dead, but we, you know, so anyway, a bit of history with that. So that was the 60s. And in the 80s, fag bashing was happening like you couldn't believe because AIDS was on the scene. And so everybody was, was afraid of being batched. Even I remember going into a bar. This was in like 1988. And I remember as I was walking to the bar, a group of guys started running toward me. They even, two of them even kind of came so far into the bar to try and grab me out. And other guys were like, what's going on? And I'm like, they were chasing me. And they were like, and then they, everybody in the bar kind of rallied and they kind of left the bar. So you're not having those kinds of experiences because I think that we've kind of fought so that you all won't have to have. And now it is about, you know, trans more so than it is about just the, you know, um, gay and lesbian community because I think now the trans community is for the first time being very seen and heard. And I think, quite frankly, doing their f- kicking ass. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm serious. When do you ever get a full television show a transgender pose with an entire show on a network that was all transgender. These are people, many of which had to fight back in the 80s and they've stuck around, they've made it through and they got a real television show. Now they have a platform. Stroll down the runway, another payday, cover of magazines. And when they see me, they want to be me. I am the fantasy. Come on, girl. Put the bass in your walk. Head to toe. Let your whole body talk. Come on, girl. Put the bass in your walk. Head to toe. Let your whole body talk. Gomez Chinese, red carpet TV, valet my limousine. That was a little bit of the Vogue mixtape by DJ Boyfriends. That's why I get so heartbroken if I see any kind of discourse where people are basically disrespecting the forerunners or disrespecting our ancestors. 
like thinking about Marsha P. Johnson and her gang. And exactly. Like, and like all those people who pretty much sacrificed their lives, basically, if you think about it. Now such a different time. It was such a different time. It was such a different time and for those of us who experienced it. Yeah. I did not experience Stonewall. Marsha P. Johnson, who I was mentioning earlier, thank you for the correction of the last name. You know, they know she was murdered. They still yet found her body. You know, but they know she was murdered. You know, but she was the one that, you know, really started the fight back at Stonewall. And they didn't like that. She was a black trans person and they were not going to have it. You are listening to Pride Nation 101. Queer voices, music, opinions, and lives from Highway 101 to the world. Hearing the name Marsha P. Johnson made me realize that I couldn't remember this history. And so I looked around online and I had to add this little segment after our interview. This is written by Emma Rothberg, PhD, a very short biography of Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha P. Johnson was one of the most prominent figures of the gay rights movement of the 1960s and 1970s in New York City. Always sporting a smile, Johnson was an important advocate for homeless LGBTQ plus youth, those affected by HIV and AIDS, and gay and transgender rights. Marsha P. Johnson was born on August 24, 1945, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Assigned male at birth, Johnson grew up in an African-American working-class family. She was the fifth of seven children born to Malcolm Michael Sr. and Alberta Claiborne. Johnson's father worked on the General Motors assembly line in Linden, New Jersey, and her mother was a housekeeper. Johnson grew up in a religious family and began attending Mount Temon African Methodist Episcopal Church as a child. She remained a practicing Christian for the rest of her life. Johnson enjoyed wearing clothes made for women and wore dresses starting at age five. Even though these clothes reflected her sense of self, she felt pressured to stop due to other children's bullying and after experiencing a sexual assault at the hands of a 13-year-old boy. Immediately after graduating from Thomas Edison High School, Johnson moved to New York City with one bag of clothes and $15. Once in New York, Johnson returned to dressing in clothing made for women and adopted the full name, Marsha P. Johnson. The P stood for Pay It No Mind, a phrase that became her motto. Johnson described herself as a gay person, a transvestite, and a drag queen, and used she-her pronouns. The term transgender only became commonly used after her death. According to her nephew, Johnson always maintained a close but fraught relationship with her family back in New Jersey. It was not easy to live in the margins. New York State still persecuted gay people and frequently criminalized their activities and presence. Rights for LGBTQ plus people were limited and sometimes ignored completely. Having difficulty finding employment, Johnson turned to sex work. She was often abused by clients and arrested by the police. She also did not have a permanent home during this time and bounced around sleeping at friends' homes, hotels, restaurants, and movie theaters. She also found work waiting tables and performing in drag shows. In a 1992 interview, Johnson said, I was no one, nobody from Nowheresville until I became a drag queen. Not long after moving to New York, then 17-year-old Johnson met 11-year-old Sylvia Rivera. Rivera, a Puerto Rican transgender woman, or young person, the two became instant friends. Rivera later said of Johnson, she was like a mother to me. As Johnson had done for herself, she encouraged Rivera to love herself and her identity. Johnson adored wearing colorful, fun outfits that she made from finds at thrift stores and discarded items. She was also often seen wearing a crown of flowers. Johnson's life changed when she found herself engaging with the resistance at the Stonewall Inn on June 28, 1969. In the early morning hours, police raided the bar and began arresting the patrons, most of whom were gay men. Johnson and Rivera arrived at Stonewall around 2 a.m., where Johnson said in a later interview, the place was already on fire and there was a raid already. The riots had already started. 
There were many competing stories about what Johnson did during the raid on the Stonewall Inn, but it is clear that she was on the front lines. Johnson, like many other transgender women, felt they had nothing to lose. They were not only angered by the police raid, but also the oppression and the fear they experienced every day. In the wake of the raid, Johnson and Rivera led a series of protests. The raid on Stonewall galvanized the gay rights movement. The first gay pride parade took place in 1970, and a series of gay rights groups, including the Gay Liberation Front, a more radical organization, and the Gay Activist Alliance, a more moderate and focused spinoff group, emerged. Johnson was involved in the early days of both, but grew frustrated by the exclusion of transgender and LGBTQ plus people of color from the movement. She actively spoke out about the transphobia in the early gay rights movement. In 1970, Johnson and Rivera founded Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, STAR, an organization dedicated to sheltering young transgender individuals who were shunned by their families. The two also began Star House, a place where transgender youth could stay and feel safe. Star House was of personal importance to Johnson and Rivera, as they had both spent much of their youth experiencing homelessness and destitution. The first Star House was in the back of an abandoned truck in Greenwich Village. Star House then moved to a dilapidated building, which they tried to fix up, but the group was evicted after eight months. Throughout the 1970s, Johnson became a more visible and prominent member of the gay rights movement. She began performing with the drag group Hot Peaches. She attracted the attention of many, including the pop artist Andy Warhol, who included her in a series of prints in a 1975 entitled Ladies and Gentlemen. In an interview Johnson did for a 1972 book, she said her ambition was to see gay people liberated and free to have equal rights that other people have in America. She wanted to see her gay brothers and sisters out of jail and on the streets again. In another interview, she said, as long as gay people don't have their rights all across America, there is no reason for celebration. In 1980, she was invited to ride in the lead car of the Gay Pride Parade in New York City. Despite her joyous personality and ever-present smile, Johnson experienced hardship. She never let her personal setbacks stop her advocacy. In the 1970s, Johnson experienced a series of mental health breakdowns and spent time in and out of psychiatric hospitals. She also continued to engage in sex work, not knowing any other way to make money, and continued to get arrested. In 1990, Johnson was diagnosed with HIV. She spoke publicly about her diagnosis and how people should not be afraid of those with the disease in a June 26, 1992 interview. On July 6, 1992, Johnson's body was found in the Hudson River. She was 46. Initially ruled a suicide, many friends questioned that conclusion and suspected foul play. At the time, 1992 was the worst year on record for anti-LGBTQ violence, according to the New York Anti-Violence Project. Police then reclassified the case as a drowning from undetermined cause. But the LGBTQ community was furious that the police refused to investigate further and that many press outlets did not cover her death. At her funeral, hundreds of people showed up at the church. It was so crowded that people stood on the street. In 2012, the New York Police Department reopened the case into Johnson's death. In 2019, New York City announced that Marsha P. Johnson, along with Rivera, would be the subject of a monument commissioned by the Public Arts Campaign. She built NYC. The monument would be the first in New York City to honor transgender women. In 2020, New York State named a waterfront park in Brooklyn for Johnson. Johnson is only now the subject of many documentaries. She remains one of the most recognized and admired LGBTQ advocates in United States history.
since you are listening to this, we know that you are a devotee of public radio. We also know that there is more competition than ever in history for your limited time. With all of the powerhouse stations in New York, Chicago, and L.A. putting out well-funded new podcasts every day, it is literally impossible to listen to even 1% of the shows about the subjects that you love and care about. Considering this, we ask you to set aside some time for us, locally produced radio, with guests you may know, may even share coffee with in the morning, talking about issues and places that are a part of your everyday life. Think global. Listen local. At least some of the time. We appreciate it for sure. You are listening to Pride Nation 101 with Chad Oliver Swimmer and Roland Corey Medina. We are having a miniature roundtable with our longtime friend JW talking about some of the great news stories that happened in the last year for the LGBTQIA plus community worldwide and also a little bit of history. Yeah, it's great to see. It's great to see that. It's great to see that stuff. I'm glad that I've lived through a lot of it. Um, and to see the change that has happened, you know, um, I mean, even RuPaul's Drag Race is watched by as many straight people, men included in that, as there are LGBTQ members. Yeah. There's a, she's won, he has won four Emmys for that show. We've come, a, we've come far, still a long way to go. But like I said, now it's the trans community's opportunity to, and like I said, I think you all are doing an amazing job. Thank you. Because <laughs> people... You, we have got to also exercise a certain level of patience and tolerance for them growing. There is no, there is no book, no, nothing to tell these people, these people being our straight constituents, how to deal with this. So we immediately go, okay, I'm transient. You're supposed to just accept me. Well, they don't know how to do that. So yeah. we have to live in a loving way, starting with our own family and our core friends, show them how by being authentic to who we are. I think the only reason my family really could accept me fully, completely holy was one, I was always an effeminate kid, but I loved them to pieces. And so they could see that he's a lovely kid and a nice young boy falling off into drugs and alcohol, but most of the family did. So I was cut from the cloth. But then when I got sober and started showing them by staying sober, making choices and going out and creating a great life, they can't help but to love me. If I tell them I'm not coming to a family function, my cousins, even younger cousins, will text me, go, why aren't you coming? Why aren't you coming? The gay person in the family, why aren't you coming? When they come through LA, they're like, we're coming to LA, we want to see you. You know what I'm saying? Because I've shown them that there is no real difference, and that's our job. Mm -hmm. Our job is not to have an expectation that they know how to deal with us. It's to just be your authentic self and show them. And it starts with family. It really does. They'll come around. And yes, Chad, there will always be the naysayers. There will always be the haters. They're going to just live with us. How do we coexist? I walk out the door as a black gay male in white racist America. Sorry, it's still that. There are people that are not. But overall, we see, we've seen from our last presidency what came about, what happened. They came out of the woodworks ready to kill, ready to fight. 
And that was a reaction to a president that we have for two terms that they hated being in the White House. Trump was a reaction. And he allowed the people who were the naysayers, the haters, to come out and have a voice. It's like, if you all had a voice, we're going to have a voice. That's the America in which we live. But how do I call it? How can I live with that and not hate myself? Because that's the thing you have to do. I'm not going to hate you because you hate me. I'm going to be aware of you, but I'm not going to let you take that space up in my heart. I don't have to deal with you. You know what I mean? And in the LGBT community, we have to teach, show, and be understanding of those that don't quite get it. It'll be okay. Well, let's move on to a different article, a different news story. And this is about the I in LGBTQIA that Greece, the country of Greece, banned genital surgery on intersex babies. And I, we read this earlier and Roland went, what? Wait, they do that? And this article doesn't say it, but apparently a think about one in a thousand children are born with some intersex characteristics. And generally, as it says here in the article, surgeries on intersex babies are often unnecessary for the child's health and are performed so that adults feel better about how the child's genitalia looks, even though the child cannot consent to the procedures. So go Greece. Good work on banning that. This is another story that's really blows my mind is Zimbabwe decriminalized HIV transmission. And this is an important thing to read that it said that the criminalization of the transmission of HIV had created stigma for those living with the virus and also, of course, caused barriers to healthcare. The release also said, the press release said that criminalizing transmission deters people from even getting tested for HIV. And in the U.S., you know, we think like it's not really that big of an issue anymore. But obviously, it's still an issue internationally. And if you're a homeless person or a person with not good health insurance, having HIV is still very dangerous. Mm -hmm. We have this one. Would you like to, did you know that you now have the right to exist, Roland, in Kuwait? No. Okay. (laughs) This one's called Trans People Won the Right to Exist in Kuwait. Um... In February, transgender equality activists scored a significant win in Kuwait as a country's constitutional court struck down a law that has long been used to criminalize transgender identity. Article 198 was deeply discriminatory, overly vague, and never should have been accepted into law in the first place. Mm -hmm. The ruling means that authorities in Kuwait must also immediately halt arbitrary arrests of transgender people and drop all charges and convictions brought against them. This was in 2022? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's shocking, but good for Kuwait. Yeah. And we have New Zealand banned conversion therapy. 112 to 8 vote. The New Zealand parliament passed a law in February banning the harmful and discredited practice of conversion therapy. I mean, if anybody has any questions about the dubious nature of conversion therapy, check out this guy, McCray Game the man who founded one of the largest conversion therapy programs in the country and led the homophobic organization for 20 years has come out as gay. Quote, I struggled more so trying to deny my attraction to men than being able to accept my attractions and say, I am a gay man. He said in a recent interview, I was a hot mess for 26 years and I have more peace now than I ever did. Eh, Sorry, buddy. 
Now, how about some big apologies due for all the young people's lives you helped ruin? Yeah, as we know, the biggest phobes are in the closet. JW, you want to say something about that? No, 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 no. I just, I mean, you were saying that many of them that actually were pushing the envelope for conversion therapy themselves have since come out gay. Yes. Right. Um, that makes sense, though, doesn't it? That makes sense when you're paying homage to your parents and a religion that you do that. And yeah. that's the thing that I was talking about. When you live your own authentic self, I knew no better than what I was. So when we are courageous enough to live our truth, people get it. We have one, two more international stories. This one is Tokyo, one of the, I think the second or third largest city in the world, granted domestic partnerships to same-sex couples. And Roland said something that where there was a Japanese lesbian couple. What were you saying? Yeah, there was a lesbian couple from Japan who were unable to get married in their home country. Someone said they traveled around the world and got married in as many other countries as they could. Lovely. Good for them. Yeah. But now they can get married in their own country. The nation of Angola officially decriminalized same-sex relationships. Good news for the LGBTQ community in Africa. And we also have Barbados. Barbados High Court decriminalizes gay sex. And this is a worthwhile article to read a little bit of. Barbados becomes the third Eastern Caribbean country in 2022 to strike down discriminatory legal provisions and decriminalize gay sex after Antigua, Barbuda, which is one country, St. Kent's and St. Nevis. The Sexual Offenses Act of 1992 sanctioned, quote, buggery with up to life imprisonment and serious indecency with up to 10 years imprisonment. While laws criminalizing same-sex intimacy in the Caribbean are rarely enforced, they are broad in scope, vaguely worded, and serve to legitimize bias and hostility towards lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. A 2018 Human Rights Watch report documented discrimination, violence, and prejudice in seven island nations in the Eastern Caribbean, including Barbados. Let's see, six countries in the Caribbean still have to have to change their laws. They still have versions of buggery and serious indecency laws on the books. So these are ones that gay travelers should boycott. Don't go to Dominica. Don't go to Grenada. Don't go to Guyana. Jamaica. Don't go to Jamaica. St. Lucia, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines. They are outliers in the Western Hemisphere where most countries have decriminalized same-sex relationships. It says there are 66 countries that still criminalize gay sex, and a lot of them are places that people go to for tourism. South Africa has problems. Lots of, oh, Indonesia. Well, there's Indonesia, as we probably heard, they just passed a law making any sex outside of marriage illegal, which is oh, kind of a foolish move for a country that needs the tourist dollars. But Well, I mean, they'll, they'll you know, listen. They'll come around or not. Or not. Well, they'll come around because of activists or not, because people, uh, I... I hope there's enough activism in Indonesia where they will come around. 
I remember the going to ACT UP demonstrations, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, and it was the <laughs> the great slogan. And anybody who's gone to a lot of demonstrations gets really sick of slogans, but mm-hmm. I love that we're here, we're queer, get used to it. And yeah, well, that need, what you see, that needed to happen. And you know, I've often wondered if if the whole AIDS pandemic hadn't occurred, would we have been? We can, well, we did fight in the sixties. Yeah, we did. We we started fighting. We started fighting before that, absolutely. But we really started fighting when they were not paying attention to us dying in a way that they could have helped. And that's why we had to fight. You had to stand up. You, right. You, we were dying in record numbers, and no one was doing anything. We had to fight. We had a president, sitting president, who was worried about, you know. Reaganomics more so than he was about people that were dying in hospitals by the thousands in a week, literally. And a wife talking about saying no to drugs. They just weren't looking at it. So you had to get out and fight. You had to, or we would have, more people would have even died. Mm-hmm. More and more people would have died. They wouldn't come up with any kind of medications if we hadn't lobbied like we did in D.C. And, you know, people were there sick on their, gasping their last breath. It's a different time. It was a yes. much different time, one that we would never want to relive again. So when people were talking about this last pandemic we dealt with COVID, so many of us were like, honey, this is one thing, but remember 1980 to 1989, you know, when no one was our ally, we didn't have allies. We didn't. We had a few. Straight people were even turning their back on their gay friends, running the other way, becoming Republican, right here in this country. They're just starting to come back around. Yeah. They're just starting to come back around with your generation, Roland. I've watched it and feel comfortable and safe enough to really hang out with gay people and have them at their parties. And, you know, and really, you know, maybe 10 years ago it started, but, you know, it was a number of years in there where they, you know, it was yeah. us versus them. Definitely. And now I'd rather, like, I get annoyed sometimes, obviously, with people kind of being like, gay best friends and stuff and all the stereotypes but i'd rather that than thinking about like everybody who's died <laughs> like for example because of the inaction of the government over fifty thousand people died during the AIDS epidemic and then you have everything that happened in the 60s along in the 60s like all that civil unrest and even oh, yeah. in the 70s, everything before then like everything was so rough for a long time but you so see now- the interesting thing was in the 60s they had to speak up and set up for themselves and as a result the 70s was a wonderful time it was all about free love sexuality, the first transgender person that I ever met was in my own apartment in our own home in 1973. My father's, one of his best friends brought home a girlfriend whose name was Dusty. And Dusty was trans woman. My family didn't think anything about it. They just started playing cards. I'll never forget. They just said, let's play Midwest. They left Dusty there to play cards with the women. And the man went out and it was just like business as usual. Don't ask questions. It's Cordell's girlfriend. Her name is Dusty. That was how the 70s were playing out. And that's what I'm saying. And then this whole AIDS pandemic came along and everyone fled. Yep, because they didn't want to be associated. They did not want to be associated. And that went on for about 20 years, realistically. Yeah. yeah. There, was a, there was a story in here that I can't find right now, but um, one country just actually dropped the prohibition against gay and bisexual men donating blood. 
And I remember that because I went to donate blood. There was a blood drive when I was in my 20s and a friend of mine took me and I got there and they're like, oh, well, you identify as bisexual. You cannot donate blood because you are a vector from the sinful HIV carrying population to the rest of the, the world. And it just astounds me that this has continued in places up till today. Well, expedience rules now because there's a shortage of blood. And so men who have sex with men can donate blood if you have not had sex for three months, which is still pretty crappy. But wait, we're talking about good news, right? Roland and I have spoken a bit about our positions. So let's talk about yours a bit, child. Because you identify as this bisexual male. And yeah. you've always done that as long as I've known you. And I love you for that. I mean, I'm, and I know your wife knows that. You have a part because that's the one community that I think in the LGBTQ can kind of sway. You know, it's like, well, I'm bisexual. And it's like, how do you as a bisexual male feel you have a responsibility to the B and the LGBTQ to actually make a difference in how the community see us? And how they deal with us. Well, I think it's very important to be out about it. And I think it's very important to identify with the LGBTQ community. Because when I was young, there was always the thing like, oh, well, you can always pass. And you can always opt out. Whereas we can't opt out. And there was the saying, well, like, you know, never date a bisexual dude. Because, you know, he'll just dump you for a woman. (laughs) And... And... And it's how do you feel about that when people I say feel like you can, a person can be dumped for anybody and it, it yes. always hurts if I'm dumped for a woman or if I'm dumped for a man, it doesn't make any difference. I, I got dumped. But the thing is, is that if I'm in a heterosexual relationship, then I have to take more effort to be out. And a lot of times, because it's kind of like the locker room thing. Well, a bunch of guys in a locker room, you must be safe to BS with and say stupid things, you know, misogynist stuff. And so people would see me and they'd think I'm straight and they would say homophobic things. And it, there's been times where it's been really hard to say something. But over the years, I've gotten more and more in defending my can. And my can are you. Uh, this is my community. And I think the other part of it, and it goes with gender identity, is is that, yeah, I am a cis man, but I don't like what the traditional people want, traditionalists, traditional conservatives want men to be. And there's a lot of me that really feels like I, I, I pick and choose when there's parts of me that are not straight macho dude. And I think it's important for people to be able to just like punch holes in the box And as myself, as a bi man, or, you know, now I even think bi is maybe the wrong term. It's pan is probably a little bit more accurate. But when I was young, I'd never heard the term pansexual. And so. Right. right. That's new. Yeah, that's new. And bisexual made sense. It's what I was. It's what I am. But why do I want to put myself in a box? And what I really want to do is just have pride for the friends I have and the people, the chosen family that I have. And the people who are important in my life. And in general, I find gay men to be some of the most loving people I've been around ever. And that's where I stand. And that's how I feel more and more. Good. I mean, I ask it because, you know, 
for example, I I work with guys that, you know, they're like, if a man says he's bisexual, he's gay. And 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 then the next sentence, they'll say, Well, you know, if my girlfriend said she's bisexual, you know, cool. You know, so it's 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 a it's different for bisexual women than it is for bisexual men because what I have found out myself through just having friends, it is true. Men, the very man that says a, a bisexual man is just gay, will accept his bisexual wife because of the fact that he may get turned on by the fact that, you know, she may want to bring another woman home. But with men, it's different. I've never heard a bisexual man say to me, oh, my wife doesn't mind if I bring home another man. Ever. Usually if a bisexual man ends up with a woman, and even if she knows it, they're fine. And like you say, Pat, you don't hear them talk about the idea that he is any, unless they're open, but that he will enjoy. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Whereas yeah. men invite the idea that, oh, my wife's bisexual. I'm cool with that. Great. Let's get married tomorrow. Call up one of your girlfriends. But a bisexual male, male, it's a little different. It's like, yeah, I've been in the company of, who knows, I may be again. But if we're monogamous, this is it. The possibility of me bringing some man home probably won't exist. Because I don't know that women are comfortable with it or the men are not comfortable. I don't know that story. I think that there's there's a bunch of different things going on. And one is your your sexual preferences, and one is your whether you are a monogamous or an open relationship person, and another is whether you're an honest person. And yeah. you know the three different things have little to do with each other. So, but a person can be bisexual and not monogamous and not honest, and that's pretty ugly. Because uh, the B in the LGBT, because everybody else is real defined. They're lesbians. There's the gay boys. There's the transgender. There's the Q. But the B, it's like, okay, so what's the B going? What's going on with that B? What's happening with the B? Well, I have, I can't so, tell and you. That's not just for you. Just, just for everyone that considers themselves bisexual. Well, I want to do one last story and then wrap it up. But... This is going to what you were saying, the, the the fact that the younger generation is standing on the shoulders of work that we did, and we're standing on the shoulders of work that people did before us, that the percentage of LGBTQIA plus adults in the U.S., people who identify in, as queer, has doubled over the last decade from 3.5% to 7.1%. And that's because people are comfortable identifying as what they want to be, who they are. And that's pretty incredible. Well, guess what? Because we've been this forever. Yeah. There's a, I was watching something maybe on YouTube. I'm always watching YouTube. Uh, and they were talking about the Roman Empire and specifically how the men would go to the baths, leaving the wives at home with the children and the nursemaids, whatever they call them. Um, and the men would go congregate at the baths and many times have sex with each other. And many of the men would have a side piece that wasn't a woman. He would have a side piece that was a man. And she, the women would know that. They just had the children, took care of the kids. And the men ran the show back then. They weren't working. It was a different time. We know that. Um, but I didn't say that to just say it's always been here. This is nothing new. It's just people are starting to just realize that, you know what? Why fight that which is actually natural 
yeah. for a lot of people. For a great many people, and this has been through, the, through all kinds of cultures. I mean, how many Asian boys used to be, you know, for centuries and centuries and centuries, the cute ones were dressed up like women and made to do things as a woman. They don't want to talk about that, but it's been going on forever. That's why Thailand, Thailand has more international visitors from around the world than any place because ladyboys are so popular there with men from around the world. It's the truth. I've not been, but I have friends that go all the time. They were like, you can't believe the number of men that come from around the world for those ladyboys. Wow. Tragedy. I just say that to say all these things have been going on forever. These things are not new. It's how we embrace them. It's how we celebrate them, actually. It's how we find a way to incorporate them into mainstream living now. Yeah. So. Well, JW, thank you so much for joining us. And so great to spend an hour with you. An hour. Can you believe that? An hour. Anything you would like to leave us with? I said enough. I've talked too much. I don't need to leave you with anything to accept. Accept what? What do I want to leave this conversation with? You know what? I am, I am, I don't know. I am just a big believer in the healthy rebel. I'm a huge believer in that. I've been that my entire life. Not knowing it really until I was an adult that what I have been is a healthy form of a rebel. Um, and I think we need more of that. I think, you know, you hear rebel and it's always, it, has, it always has a negative connotation. I believe there's a positive connotation because I think that sometimes we must rebel against the norm if we're not that in order to have a voice to be seen, to be heard, and eventually to be protected. You know, I think that that's essential. And that's really living one's authentic self, knowing who you are authentically. And hopefully you get to that place at an early enough age where you just go, you know what, this is the deal. I'm a boy that wears pink sweaters and I'm 18 years old and get away from me. You know, <laughs> I did. I was, I had a lot of pink sweaters. I was 18 in high school running around. Well, you know, that's it. That's what I leave you with. Healthy well, thank you. I am going to leave you all with my thoughts that there's so many, there are so many crappy things going on in the world. It is really nice to read all these really positive stories and to know that actually most people are a lot more conscientious and aware and loving than maybe they've ever been in history. I, I mean, it's progress, isn't it? It's, it's progress. I mean, and I, you know what? And I think a lot of this though is happening too. Cause I think people are, I won't, I don't know if detaching themselves is the right term, but I do think that people are detaching themselves from the religious belief system that they've been brought up with and the doctrine that comes with that. I think people are finding for themselves that the religion didn't work for them and they didn't like it. And they were kind of held hostage to something that they didn't really believe in, but they had to because the family, and so I think when people break away, their minds become more expansive and they're more loving. They're like, bring it on. It's all good. Because they relate. They can relate to it. They may not relate to our sexual preference, we'll say. But they can relate to being beaten down. They can relate to being um, made to think and live a certain way against their will. They can relate to that. I think we have a lot of people that are looking to find a different way. I think we got a lot of people going from being religious people to being spiritual beings. And the spiritual being is the one that's a bit more open and willing 
loving of all mankind, not just one type. Catholics only like Catholics, or Baptists only like Baptists, or Jews only like Jews, you know, or Hindus only like Hindus. You know what I'm saying? Whatever that means. No, we're bigger than that. We're bigger than that. We're more than that. We're more than that. So, Amen. We would like to thank you for spending the last hour with us, Chad Oliver Swimmer and Roland Corey Medina in Pride Nation 101. And also a big thanks to JW, my longtime friend and confidant and somebody whose wisdom I just really enjoy sharing on this show. And a shout out to Alicia Bales and Rich Culbertson of KZYX for helping to make this show happen. And don't forget... Eddie, the music director of KZYX, Eddie of the Golden Voice, thank you, thank you. And, of course, the views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the staff or management of any station that airs Pride Nation 101. Only those of ourselves and our guests. See you next month. See you next month. Oh, no, I just realized we forgot about the Besaton Colombiano, the Colombian Kissathon which actually apparently happened on April 17th, 2019, but it's still pretty cool. In Bogota, Colombia, dozens of same-sex couples kissed simultaneously outside an upscale shopping mall in Colombia's capital. Wednesday, in the latest demonstration calling for LGBTQIA plus rights in the South American country, the Kiss-a-thon was held just days after two gay men in their early 20s were harassed at the shopping center by a man who pushed the couple, screamed profanities at them, and accused them of fondling each other in front of a group of children. The incident was caught on video by bystanders and shared widely on social media, sparking a wave of support for the young gay couple. On Wednesday night, hundreds of activists waving rainbow flags gathered around one of the mall's entrances and screamed chants in support of gay rights. Kissing is no crime. See you next time. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Thank you.